Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Sean. So, we are in a series we're calling How Jesus Transforms Our Cultural Moment. And so we've been going through different topics and different things of, that our culture believes and how does that, based on what Jesus says, and how do we speak into those things. And so today I want to talk about the subject of violence and evil. That's right, violence and evil. Now, how do we understand a gracious God when we live in a world full of evil and full of violence? And so I want to begin and kind of ask a question um, and for you to think about and for you to answer actually vocally. Um, and so if you were to ask your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends, what, what is evil? How do you think they would describe evil? And I want you to think about this question. I want to ask this question because um, our culture doesn't disagree with us that, that there's evil and violence in the world. It's, it's, not, it's not something new that like all of a sudden, oh, there's evil and violence. Like everyone knows that, everyone agrees with it. Um, but our culture does have a different definition of what evil is. And we need to know that so we can actually speak the truth of the gospel in it. And, and actually compare it to God's definition of evil. And so, so how would our city, how would our culture, how would our neighbors, our friends define evil? Well, what would they say? Mass shootings. Mass shootings. So terrible acts that are done by people. Okay, what else? Genocide. Genocide. Okay. Hatred. Hatred. Okay, what else? It's all good. Certain political leaders. Yeah, depending on what party you uh, believe in, like the president that is in now or the president was in the past or whatever, you think that person is evil depending on your political bias. Yeah, good. What? Bullying. Bullying. Okay, yeah, schools talk a lot about bullying. Okay, business or capitalism is, is evil. It's taking over and it's pushing people down. Yeah, good. Ghosts and goblins. Okay, yeah, things that we can't see that we're afraid of that are evil. Yeah, good. Uh, intolerance. Yeah, if somebody's not tolerant to your beliefs, they're not tolerant. Not sure how that works because tolerance means that you would understand all things. But anyway, do we really believe if someone's not tolerant to our belief, they're evil? Yeah, good. What else? Oh, disasters. Natural disasters. Okay. Okay, some people think ghosts are. Yeah, good. What else? Racism. Okay, yeah, good. Child abuse. Child abuse. Yeah, horrible acts. Yeah. Abuse in general. Really, really, I think it's this definition of like outside, anything outside like the cultural norms of our society, right? Things that we think are outside of those things. Yeah, good. What else? Religion. Religion is evil. Okay? Yeah. Power. Power is evil. Okay? Only things that harm other people are evil. Things that harm other people. Yeah. Okay? Good. Yeah. At least we can define what harms someone else. Okay. We, so we make our own definitions of what is harmful and what isn't harmful. Yeah, yeah, good, good. 
In 2018, uh, Stanford, it's a pretty smart school. Somebody went there, I'm sure. Um, all right, was singing up here today. Um, I'm not going to say who. She had a guitar. Um, but Stanford had this encyclopedia of philosophy, and they wrote, an, they wrote an article on the concept of evil. And I think it really kind of sums up the moment we live in, and it says this. Since World War II, moral, political, and legal philosophers have become increasingly interested in the concept of evil. This interest has been partly motivated by ascriptions of evil by laymen, social scientists, journalists, and politicians, as they try to understand and respond to various atrocities and horrors, such as genocide, terror attacks, mass murder, tortures, and killing sprees by psychopathic serial killers. It seems that we cannot capture the moral significance of these actions and their perpetrators by calling them wrong or bad or even very wrong or very, very bad. We need the concept of evil. You see, our culture doesn't disagree with the concept of evil. It just kind of sees it as a little bit bad, a little bit more. It's a little bit badder. Evil, evil, is, evil is really bad. When I was growing up, I, I kind of understood this concept of, of little white lies. Right? Like little white lies, were, they, weren't, they weren't really that bad. They were just kind of stretching the truth. Uh, but a lie, that was really bad. But white lies, not so much. And I think we have this like hierarchy of evil in our culture we don't want to be seen as evil or consider ourselves evil, and so we reserve that for someone else worse than us. Like you were saying earlier, like we kind of all make this definition. I think even within the church, we have this idea where we wouldn't say um, or write it down in a doctoral statement that man is basically good. We, we agree with original sin, but we all live our lives with, with this list of things that we're willing to say, that's okay. I'm going to let that slide. But then we have this other list over here that says, I'm not going to, those things are evil. And we all live with this illusion, I think, of being good on the inside. You see, the problem with with this definition and, and our culture's definition of evil is it really isn't in line with what we find in Scripture. It stops short of God's definition of evil. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, um, we find this, this definition of, of evil that God writes down. And then he writes it down through, through the, the, the pen of Jeremiah. And it says this. Chapter 2, verse 13. My people have committed two great evils. My people have committed two great evils. So number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And number two, They've hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, when Jeremiah was writing this, um, cisterns were basically kind of lime-filled pots that they would use that they would gather water in from the rain, or if they had a well or they went to a river, they would pour some water in there, and they would use these pots and water for, for things like cooking or cleaning or bathing. In some of the, some of the really wealthy homes, they would actually dig out a basement, um, and they would, they would line it, and they would fill it with water, 
um, so they could use it, so they'd have more of it, and they would maybe sometimes use it to irrigate their plants. And, and cisterns were really very important uh, for people's survival. I think especially in the desert climate of the Middle East, where, where they were here. Now, we, we, don't, we don't think about cisterns very much right now. We, we have running water. We just don't even think about where it comes from. We turn a faucet and it comes out, and we say, that's fine. And, and if it doesn't come out, we freak out, right? But we, we actually still have cisterns. We, we call them water towers, or we call them reservoirs. And actually, in every house, um, every home actually has a cistern. If you have a toilet, you have a cistern. The tank on the, that holds the water in a toilet is actually a cistern designed to actually, with the correct amount of water, to flush your waste down. Right? And, and many places in the world still actually have ancient-style cisterns. Um, I was in Indonesia a few years ago, and I was working with a persecuted church there, and, and we were meeting with different people and, and that were sometimes in hiding and sometimes not, and we were, we were in this school, and I, I went into the bathroom, and the school is similar to a school like this. It didn't look exactly like this. They actually had hallways um, because but, cause it rains there. Um, but I went to the bathroom, and, and I went there, and right beside the toilet was this, like, I don't know, it was like, kind of like a, looked like a bathtub, but it was like this tall, and it was square, and it was full of water. And I was like, that's interesting. Why do they have a bathtub next to the toilet? Um, and so I went to the bathroom, and then I went to wash my hands, because the, there was a sink there, and I was like, well, there's no water. And I was like, how do I wash my hands? Because there, so there was a ladle, and you took the ladle, and you would pour it over yourself, and that's, there was no toilet paper either, and so you had to pour that over yourself. It was like old-style bidet, right? Um, now, so they had cisterns, and still there's places in our world that actually have cisterns um, in, in their places of where they live. And so a broken cistern, if you want to think about this, is really something that doesn't hold water. It's like an empty reservoir. Um, it's like a broken toilet. It's not very helpful in life. And so Jeremiah here is comparing um, God to a, to a fountain of living water, uh, to a a fountain of living water that continues to flow over and over to, to something that can't even hold water anymore. Something that can't hold water anymore. I was thinking about that this week as I was in my, my house and when we were rebuilding our house and we're still doing that, um, Jess wanted one of her like items that she wanted to have was this tub in our bathroom. She's like, I have to have this tub. And I was like, okay, well, you can have that tub, but only if I get a rainhead shower next to it. Because I was in Europe, and I was like, I stood under these things, like, oh, I need one of those. And so, like, she got a tub, and, I, and we built this shower, and actually has three shower heads in it. There's one that comes this way, and then it's got a little handheld. It's kind of pretty nice. Um, but um, but it, it, it's not very nice if water doesn't come out of it, and if it doesn't work. And so Jeremiah is really comparing. He's saying, this is what evil is. Evil is actually preferring an empty cistern, something with maybe with just a little bit of muddy water that you'd pour over yourself to like stepping under that shower where like you can get hit from like every angle. It's not even like a comparison or something that you would want to walk into. But he's saying, really basically he's saying, evil is, is preferring broken cisterns to God. Basically, evil is preferring anything to God. Because anything measured against God is like a broken cistern, something that is really foolish and doesn't do anything for us. Really, the core essence of evil is preferring anything more than God, loving anything more than God. Evil 
is, is not a function of doing bad stuff. Evil is actually a function of actually preferring something other than God. Violence, then, is just a byproduct of our evil preferences. Really, it's the living out of a preference at the expense of others. When someone commits violence, they're valuing their own preference over the value of other people. So God's definition of evil is really an act of preferring or failing to value what is ultimately valuable, and that is him. If we take a look at Romans uh, chapter 3, it says this, All have sinned, basically all have committed evil, and fall short of the glory of God. So sin here is defined in the relationship of the glory of God. Basically, when we fall short, literally is the idea of we're, we're lacking or being without God's glory. And so why do we lack God's glory? Well, if you go earlier in Romans, Romans 1.23 says, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so the reason why we lack the glory of God in Romans 3.23 is because we've actually exchanged it. We've preferred other images. We've preferred other things. And I want to say probably the thing that we most prefer is the thing that actually stares back at you in the mirror every morning. We love the one in the mirror. And we prefer getting praise for ourselves rather than praise for God. We prefer being made much of rather than making much of God. And so evil then is actually feeling and doing and saying anything that actually reflects the exchange of God for lesser things. So evil is not a hierarchy of bad things or really bad things. It's actually anything that reflects the fact that we exchanged God for a lesser thing. We'll spin this out a little bit more. If you take the Ten Commandments, for example... I'm sure if we had asked that question on the street, um, what evil represents, um, people would probably come up in some fashion, somebody probably would say something about the Ten Commandments. I think most people in our city would agree that the Ten Commandments are, are a good summary of what is right or wrong. They may not follow them, but they would say they're a good summary of what is right. They would see them as, as good morality. But yet if you look at the Ten Commandments, almost all of them are stated in, in the negative, basically a contradiction or a denial of something. Don't do X, don't do Y, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery. So they're basically renouncing evil. But what is interesting is if you think about them in terms of God's definition of evil, if you look at the first commandment, which says, you shall have no other gods before me, and you look at the last commandment, you shall not covet, Basically, they're virtually saying the same thing. One's in a negative and one's in a positive, right? There's God says, don't have any other gods before me. Don't prefer anything before me. And don't covet really means don't prefer things you shouldn't prefer. So at the beginning of the Ten Commandments and at the end of the Ten Commandments, they're basically stating for us the essence of evil, which then underlies all the other evils that we need to avoid in the other Eight Commandments. So the Ten Commandments, in essence, are, are evil, are the action of waiting and preferring and desiring something that would cause God to look less than actually supremely valuable in your life. 
But if we think about the Ten Commandments, Jesus takes them way further, doesn't he? He says anything in your heart that your heart values or your heart prefers, anything other than that is actually breaking these commandments. So what your heart and your mind prefer is actually evil. So evil then is actually feeling, it's actually thinking, it's actually speaking, it's acting in any way that would actually treat God as though he were not supremely valuable. This is a pretty heavy, pretty all-inclusive definition of evil. I don't want to say it probably implicates all of us. Not probably, but it does. It implicates all of us. So violence then is just acts of people actually living out their identity. Living out who they truly are as evil. And so it should be no surprise to us that our city, that our country, that our world is full of violence. Because as Romans says, we all have fallen short, we've all committed evil, and we prefer things to God than, rather than God. And I know this is not a popular message that I've just taught. It rubs on our pride. It, we don't want to be seen as evil. And just like our city would agree with evil existing alongside of them, they don't want to be implicated, and neither do you, and neither do I. We don't want to be seen as evil people. We all like to compare ourselves to someone else who we deem more evil than ourselves. We may say, you know, I'm sinful, but that guy is way worse. Because the reality is, we love sin. You and I, we love sin. We love evil. We do evil because it pleases us. We love what we're doing or we wouldn't do it. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, you know what, i got to go sin today out of duty. I don't really feel like sinning, but I, I really should sin some today, so let me get after it. We don't do that. We embrace it because it pleases us. It actually gives us pleasure. And we constantly run to things and we say, this is better than God. I prefer this over God and what he says. And it started in the garden with humans preferring the knowledge of God to actually God himself. Right? And, and it, has, it has plagued every human since then. We prefer things other than God. And we compare ourselves and we point our fingers at someone else to justify our own evil. Just like in the garden. It was the woman you gave me. It was the snake that you made. They're the evil ones. I'm not evil. I was just a little mistaken or misguided. And we live in this lie of minimizing our sin, minimizing our, our evil, rather than actually seeing it as truly evil before God. The big problem is we are comparing ourselves to the wrong person. It's like this idea, I was thinking about this this morning, I'm like, how am I going to say this? There, it's like a pig who's like rolling around in the mud and he gets all covered and he comes out and he's standing over there and he sees another pig in the mud and he's like, that pig is so dirty. <laughs> like, what is that pig thinking? I'm not dirty like that. It's a foolish comparison that we're making with other people. We need to start comparing ourselves with God because only God is good. We sang this this morning, but holy is the opposite of evil. Holy is the opposite of vile. 
All throughout the Bible, over and over again, we see every human fail to be holy. Even the greatest characters in the Bible, people like, oh, I want to be like them. They're a mess. And they commit evil acts over and over again. There is no one good. I want to read from 1 Samuel. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. And we find in this passage is, is Hannah. And Hannah is, is relenting over not being able to have a baby and how people actually have been treating her evilly because of that. And she, she's been relenting for a bit. And, and in her prayer, she gets to this point, And it's really a reminder to her own heart of what is true. In 1 Samuel 2, verses 2, it says this. There was no one holy like the Lord. There was no one beside you. There was no rock like our God. There was no one holy like you, Lord. There was no one beside you. There was no rock like our God. I think this is a really important confession that she makes in her heart. Because if this is our condition, if what I've just talked about for the past 15 minutes is actually true, if we're actually evil people, I want to remind us that the thing that needs to change in your life uh, to make you good is not you just doing something else. It's not your circumstances. It's not your behavior. It's not someone else's behavior. The main thing that actually needs to change is your heart. And it starts with a confession like Hannah made right here, that the only hope for change is a holy God. We need to have hearts that actually recognize that and believe that, that there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. You see, I think it's really easy for us to run to other things to find our hope to change from being evil. And everyone in our city and everyone on the planet is actually looking for change, whether they know it or not. Often it may just look like, I'm just going to try a little bit harder. I'm going to do this and then I'm going to change. Maybe it's, well, if I just had some more accountability, that's what I need. I need, a, I need a personal coach in my life. I need a sponsor. I need someone to hold me accountable. Then I would be not so bad. Sometimes it's just like, well, if I could just get out of this season of life I'm in, as soon as I get through this busy time or this hard time, if I could find a job or get the job that I actually really love, or, or once I get out of school or get into school that I want to be, when this... Maybe if I can find a spouse that actually loves me, um, that would change my life and that would bring about change in my life. We have these ideas. I think even within the church, we're tempted to place our hope and really, I want to say this, sometimes we in the ability to see our own brokenness. Now I'm equipped. Now I understand. Now I see my idols. I know what I'm supposed to do. Now I'm going to be changed. None of those things are the basis for our hope of change. The only hope that we have to offer each other and offer a culture full of evil is God himself. There's an amazing story in Exodus where, where Moses is, is talking with God and, and he's, he's asking God to, to change the nation of Israel and, and to be with them and, and, and to, to go before them. And he says this in chapter 33, verse 15. And this is his hope. And he said to them, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. 
For how shall be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not you going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other nation on the face of the earth? It's an amazing thing how Moses actually talks to God. Moses has has spent a bunch of time in the presence of God, and he has great boldness with God. And it's a picture of, I want to say, a boldness that we get to have as well. But Moses says, you've got to come with us. Because if you're not with us, if your presence isn't among us, then we have nothing. This is what actually marks us as, with your, as your people. Your presence marks us. I want to say the only hope we have is, is being in the presence of God. Moses is saying the only hope is God's presence. The only hope we have to walk in the midst of evil is being in the presence of God. I'm sure you've seen this with your, with your kids or seen this with other kids. Um, when they go into a new place or a crowd, maybe they'll, they'll grab onto their parent's hand or their leg. My girl's always like, Dad, pick me up, pick me up. So I was always like carrying like three or four like this. They're like, basically they're saying, I need your presence to proceed into this new situation. I need your presence to actually walk into this room of a bunch of people that I don't know who they are and I'm afraid of them. A couple of weeks ago, after the gathering, I was outside getting some water, and I was drinking at the water fountain, and I felt these little arms like grab my leg, and I was like, I know I don't have one that short anymore. Um, so I, I turned around, and I looked down, and I saw this, these little like blue eyes and blonde head looking at me, and there was a face that, that turned from like peace to bewilderment to like horror, right? And then she was like, I've grabbed the wrong leg. And I smiled, and she's like, <laughs> she took off running, right? And I wonder if we're not like that a lot, where we're people who grab onto others, and we grab onto people, and we grab onto things that we replace our hope and find security in, only to discover that what they actually provide is not what we're looking for. And we look up, and we look up, and we find terror in our eyes, and we run off to go grab something else. I want to say we need the same thing. We need to grab hold of God's presence. It is our only hope. It is the only hope that you have to offer your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, as you look around, even in this room. The only hope that you have to offer anyone else in a world full of brokenness and full of evil and full of violence is the presence of God. See, in Moses' culture, the presence of God dwelt in the tabernacle, in this tent, specifically in the Holy of Holies, on the top of, of the Ark of the Covenant. And only the high priest could go into this room, into this part of the tent, and offer atonement for the evil of others. God's presence was in one place in, Mo- in Moses' time. But really, the good news is that God answered Moses' prayer. God's answered Moses' prayer for his presence among his people. Not only at that moment, but ultimately in the person of Jesus. Colossians 1.21 says this, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in us, in his body of flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, the good news of the gospel is that you and I and everyone else has the ability to go from the identity of evil to the identity of blameless and to be now in the presence of God for all time. You see, the temple 
of sin and evil that had to be atoned for in the temple. Sin and evil had to be atoned for over and over and over and over again. But Jesus integrates a new covenant. He says, there's a new arrangement here. God is renewing his vows with his people and the whole world is now involved. God is saying, I'm going to keep both sides of the covenant. I'm going to remove evil and I'm going to replace it with my spirit. See, the good news is that a holy God knew, who knew no evil, who evil was never a part of him, took on flesh in the person of Jesus, walked among evil, and willingly went to the cross to take the penalty for evil. And on the cross, he received the violence of humanity so that evil humans like you and like me could be in his presence. That's good news. Jesus' death and resurrection makes it now possible for evil to be removed and for a holy God to actually dwell inside of you. We no longer have to be kids who grab onto the wrong legs only to realize that they're worthless, empty cisterns. We get to now prefer His holiness over evil. When you place your faith and your trust in Jesus, the fullness of God, the fullness of His divine presence now dwells inside of you. If you have trusted Jesus, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And it's the same Spirit that dwelt in Jesus. The Creator God now dwells in you. The author and giver of life dwells in you. That's what we get to walk in. That's what we get to offer others as we live in the midst of evil. That is the only hope. It's the only hope. It's the only hope that we have. It's the only hope of change in our city. It's actually the presence of God to move us from a place of evil to a place of blameless. I think one of the greatest lies and, and evil really in our city is that the hope for change is actually found inside of you. The, the plurism, plural, man, can you say that word? plurism of spirituality. I'll take a little bit of this, I'll take some of that, and I'll take some of this, and I'll make my own way to God. I'll make my own spirituality. I'll make my own religion. Because all paths lead to God. Basically what we're saying is the good inside of you will come out if you just look for it. Essentially, if you get to decide what is evil, you'll get to decide how to remove it. But there's a difference between the gospel and religion and spirituality. You see, the gospel says Jesus is all. It is complete. It is finished. There's no need to. I can't do anything to add anything to what he's done for me. He is my identity now, and I get to find my rest in his presence. Spirituality and religion basically say, I don't want God. I want his blessings. I just want what he can provide for me. And I can work really hard, and I can earn special favor with God, and when I work hard, I can put God in this place of obligation where now he has to act on my behalf. He has to give me his presence when I want it. And all that does is make our hearts prideful, and it's about our performance and about our experience, rather than actually having a heart full of gratitude and thankfulness for something that we couldn't do. We live in a culture that dabbles in all kinds of religion and all kinds of spirituality. Spirituality is accepted. Just don't tell me one way is right. 
Christianity is not just another religion in the list of, of options. It's not a list of, of do's or don'ts to remove the evil and violence out of your life and out of people's lives in society. It's radically different from religion and spirituality. Christianity is a life marked with a relationship with a person. A life that is living in the presence of God. It is the hope for transformation, true transformation, knowing that what God says about you, knowing that God says, I will never leave you or forsake you, that despite our evil, despite our rebellion, despite the violence that we do to one another, we never have to have that conversation that Moses had with God. We don't ever have to say, please don't go. You have to stay with me. Don't leave me. Don't, don't let me go. We never have to have that conversation with God to beg him to stick around. God is saying to us in the person of Jesus, you don't have to have that conversation anymore because my spirit now dwells within you. The spirit of God is called a seal. You're sealed with him. It's this idea that, that when a king um, issues a decree and, and he rolls it up and he dips his ring in hot wax and he seals it shut. And a seal really means two things. It means ownership. Ultimately, this belongs to the king. And it means authority. That no one can break that seal except when someone who has the authority of the king. And you and I, those of us that placed our trust in Jesus, have been sealed. God has basically dipped his ring in hot wax and pushed it on your heart. He's saying, you have been marked. The Spirit is called our down payment or our inheritance, it's the idea that you have, have been deposited a guarantee for all eternity that the Spirit will never leave you or forsake you. So what this means in, in your moments, in my moments of, of depression or despair or need or hurt or pain or evil or temptation, or as we look at all the brokenness around us, the place that you and I get to go to to find rest is in the presence of God who actually now dwells inside of your soul. It's the basis of hope for change, that within the brokenness, there is actually hope we get to offer this city. That God is actually faithful. That he is actually good. That he is actually more valuable than preferring anything else. It's the good news that we get to go to, that we get to walk in his presence now, not just for all eternity, but we get to be in his presence right here and right now. Because the reality really is the best part of heaven is not the streets of gold. It's not the lack of sickness or the pain. It's not the things that God will give us or that we'll get to do and experience. The best part of heaven is actually being in the presence of God. Sitting in the lap of our Father and basking in His glory for all eternity. And that's the good news that we get to share with our city that Jesus' love is actually renewing. It's actually restoring. It doesn't just take away our evil and let us stay there. It actually changes us and moves us into his presence. And I want to I invite you this morning um, to change your affections, to confess the things that you've preferred over God, to ask God to change your affections, to change the things, and to turn your eyes and your heart to Jesus that you would prefer his presence over anything else that we would think or could imagine would be better and more valuable than him. 
And when the more that impacts your life, the more you're going to share the truth of that hope and the reality with other people. Jordan's going to come up and she's going to sing a song for us as we kind of just have a time of, of reflection and, and to think about those things and to think about the things that, that you have preferred. And I'm going to pray and she's going to sing a song from Jeremiah chapter 2. So Father, we thank you that you didn't leave us in our evil and in our violence deciding on our own who was right and what was wrong, but that in the person of Jesus, you came and you eradicated evil out of our hearts. Father, we thank you for the great hope of that. Father, I pray that you would remind us of that. Father, I pray that we would walk in that identity. Father, I pray if there's people here today that have never believed that truth, that they actually are evil and actually need to be changed, and that evil is not going to produce anything else but evil, that they need a holy God to change them. Father, I pray that that would be a reality in their life, that they would turn over and see you as more valuable. Father, for those of us that have trusted you, Father, I pray that we would not turn from that. Father, I pray that we would value you and prefer you over anything else that this world has to offer. Father, thank you that we get to walk in your presence, that we get to live in your presence despite the evil and violence around us. Father, I pray that we would not offer simple fixes to the only thing that you can fix by yourself. Father, I pray that we would offer that hope to our city and that truth to people that understand and know a need for change. Father, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.